Well, I think I must go back to the hotel now. Oh, no more jumping. No, that was my last chance. Oh, your fault, terrible woman. It wasn't. It was a silly little dog. I might have been killed, you know. You realize that my last day here might have been my last day on Earth. Your last day here? Mm -hmm. You're not leaving tonight, are you, Louis? I'm afraid, yes. By the last train. Oh, Uncle Louis. What do you call me, Uncle? Well, you're just like an uncle, aren't you? <laughs> How <laughs> dare you, miss? We shall miss you, Louis. <laughs> Mum, you'll cry her eyes up. Won't she, Daddy? Yes, dear. You think so? Oh, she adores you. Doesn't she, Daddy? Yes, dear. I'm desolate to go. As it is my last night, would you and your charming wife accept to have dinner with me tonight? Oh, she'd love it, both of us. Good. Oh, Uncle Louis. Yeah. I get awfully hungry in the evening. Do you? Yes, you get awfully sleepy too, darling. Long after your bedtime, my child. Oh, let me sit down. I'll sleep overtime tomorrow. I will ask your mother. Oh, yes, please. Where is Jill? Mm. She's working off the finals of the clay pigeon shooting. I see. I do hope she wins, don't you, Louis? Who's against her? That fellow Raymore. Uh-huh. Well, then she's got to win. Oh, don't you like him, Trouble? Do you? Oh, I don't know. He's all right. Bit of a bore. He means well, doesn't he? Why don't you like him? He's got many too many teeth and, and too much brilliant teeth. Thank you. Without your help, anything might have happened here. Oh, a pleasure, monsieur. There are moments in life when we all need a little help. Yeah. Just, just what was the trouble? Uh, your little boy accidentally pulled off his wife's veil, you oh. know? Hey. Oh, I want to introduce my wife, Miss McKenna. How do you do? How do you do, madame? My name is Louis Bernard. Well, we thank you very much, Mr. Bernard. That's our son, Hank. Hello, Hank. Hello. You talk, Eve talk. A few words. Why was he so angry? It was just an accident. But uh, the Muslim religion allows for few accidents. Yeah, I oh. suppose so. Uh, may I be permitted? Oh, yeah, sit down. sit down, right in front of Joe there. Oh, I thought his name was Hank. Uh, oh, no, it's my wife's name. You see, J O, no E. How different. Uh, short for Josephine. I've called her that for so long, nobody knows her by any other name, do they? No. I do. Mummy. Oh, yeah. Forgot about now, that. About the accident. You see, a Muslim woman never takes off her veil in public under any circumstances. Oh, I see. You mean they feed intravenously? Oh, hey. What a big <laughs> world for such a small boy. <laughs> you see, I'm a doctor. Oh, well, he sounds like one. <laughs> oh, yeah, he can spell hemoglobin. Of course, he has a little trouble with words like dog and cat. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you practice, doctor? Indianapolis, Indiana. Good Samaritan hospital out there. What brings you to Marrakesh? Well, you see, we were attending a medical convention in Paris, and I thought as much as we were in Europe, I'd come down and see Morocco again. Daddy liberated Africa. 
I was stationed up in Casablanca, an Army Field Hospital during the war. Do you live in Morocco, Mr. Van Eyck? No. I suppose you came directly from Paris. Well, we looked in on Lisbon and Rome. And Casablanca. And Casablanca. I hope you will have time to truly enjoy Marrakesh. Well, let's see. We have at the most about three days. You will naturally be stopping at the hotels La Munia or La Menera. What do you ask? Because they are hotels for tourists of good taste. Oh. Do you live in France, Mr. Bernard? Sometimes. Do you eat snails? <laughs> when I'm lucky enough to get them. Well, if you ever get hungry, our garden back home is full of snails. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> That's all right. We tried everything to get rid of them. We never thought of a Frenchman. <laughs> Time for a new episode of Split the Difference. I'm your host, Jesse. Today I have with me Seth. Hello. And returning once again, our buddy Josh Dysart. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you were you've been, you've been busy recently. Uh, you just <laughs> yeah, you just came back from San Diego and thought you got sick. Was that right? Yeah, man. It was uh, crazy. Everybody around me uh, turned positive, turned COVID positive. And I took 10 days, five rapids and two PCR tests and never, ever turned positive. I even drove in a car with the windows up with someone who turned positive that night, who as soon as he (laughs) got home and I like fell asleep with my mouth gaping open, just sucking in air. (laughs) In this car, and I still somehow miraculously uh, am not positive. So I am pretty sure that I am invincible. And now I can do anything. I can make out with strangers. Hey, that's uh, <laughs> that's your prerogative. Yeah, it's your choice. <laughs> yeah, but we're not. <laughs> but we're not here but to talk I, about I that. Can. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I'm on the wrong podcast. <laughs> We're here to talk about The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original film from 1934, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, versus the <laughs> the 1956 remake, also directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah! So we're comparing, once again, uh, two films by the same filmmaker. We did this with Funny Games last season. We're doing it again this season. So, um... I don't think we need to introduce who Alfred Hitchcock is, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Of course, we all know that. Now, this original film, um, I wanted Josh on this because you have Criterion Channel and you watch Criterion mostly at this point. Is that correct? Oh, I wouldn't say mostly, but it's definitely a, at least a third of my my diet, my movie diet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and this original film. I feel film like, I'm, I feel like I'm talking criteria. to the person that like takes their fiber pills every day. I'm like, well, yes. I, I, I just I respect <laughs> it because I know that my diet is mostly the McDonald's version of yes. filmmaking. <laughs> yes, but you know, I mean, for me, my diet is like it's like a third Criterion, it's a third whatever crazy ass shit I can find on Tubi, and it's a third just absolute horror films that's i think that's essentially my diet in a nutshell so i mean i i I think that's sustainable that sounds that that's like the paleo of film 
diets. Yeah, I still <laughs> somehow have high cinematic cholesterol, but I, I, I don't know how to work on that. I don't know how right. to change my diet up, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Someday we'll figure it out. Yeah, this is a weird one to come in on because we've never... No, we we have done Hitchcock before, I think, in general. But this we is did like Psycho. A, we did Psycho. Yeah, this oh, is like a, I wanted to be on the Psycho one. That's because <laughs> did you, you weren't go, available? You weren't available. I know that I'm really. I know that I, I'm an asshole in that regard. That I'm always not available. But uh, <laughs> what did you guys come down on? I don't want to derail this podcast, but I'm guessing both of you slagged on the Gus Van Sant Psycho. We said it was an interesting experiment. How diplomatic of you. That that's I mean, I didn't I don't hate the remake, but I do think that it's it, it doesn't in my opinion, it doesn't work in color. It's a film that really needed to be in black and white, which is why it was even when the original was made, that was when color was becoming part of mainstream cinema, yet he decided to go back to black and white because that's what fit the story. Well, he also financed it himself and it's well, much yeah. cheaper to shoot in black and white. Very yeah. true. Uh, you know, I mean, Hitchcock was definitely somebody who could spin a yarn about why he would make a creative choice. And then, yeah. you, and then you dig a little deeper and you're like, all right, nice. Making. <laughs> uh, I guess I, 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 I defend and I, I fight to the death uh, for my love of the Gus Van Sant Hitchcock. I think uh, I, I, I defend it. I think it's awesome. I stand it. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but uh, it's it's probably my one most um, controversial uh, movie opinion is how much I love uh, the remake of Psycho, even though uh, what's his name is a terrible Norman Bates. The fuck <laughs> oh, Vince, Vince Vaughn. Yeah, Vince we Vaughn. Agree. He is, he is what awful. a what a terrible choice. But part of what makes that movie so amazing is also the terrible choices that are made throughout that movie. But I, I deeply and profoundly defend it. I think it's great. I think Psycho 2 is great. I think, think Psycho 3 is great. I think the whole thing is amazing. So Didn't the original actor come back to direct one of those last yes, ones? Yes, the third, yeah. one. Perkins, the third one. Yes, and it's awesome. He does a great job of it. He Yeah. It's an interesting trilogy. I like that original Psycho trilogy. The fourth one, which is kind of a prequel sequel something that th that fourth one's not good it's like a made for tv movie yeah <laughs> i never saw psycho 4 i did not know that was a thing when did that come out oh years ago it, it's it's not good <laughs> it looks like a tv movie i think it was the actually beginning. filmed for television yeah psycho it was filmed for, for television beginning. that that yeah. sounds like the tar pits of the late 80s or early 90s yeah <laughs> Anthony Perkins. So, uh, okay, yeah, okay. Hitch Hitchcock. Um, I'm I'm happy to be here. I guess it was my point on bringing, but it, this feels like a weird sidecar of Hitchcock that we're about to jump into with uh, with these movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think yeah. it. I I actually think it's really. Uh, this is an important property, for lack of a better term, to talk about in Hitchcock's work. Uh, it, it, you're right that in retrospect, looking back on it, it generally both films seem like a little bit lesser films. But the his history of The Man Who Knew Too Much, I mean, the 34 version, and we'll get into this, obviously, but Hitchcock essentially invents the modern thriller blockbuster with this movie. And, mm. and not just, I mean, he invents the, the Hitchcock template moving forward. I mean, after this, he's very rarely deviates from a lot of the core foundational plot structure points that he 
created in this film. But beyond that, he he impacts like kind of all of thriller blockbuster movies after this in many yeah. ways. Yeah. So yeah. It, so it is a, an incredibly important film, I think, historically. Now, you know, we we can get into you know how we feel about the movie itself, but. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, like the film he did right after this in 1935 was The 39 Steps, which is basically the same movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's it's, what I'm saying. He does the, he makes the same movie for most of his career after this. Yeah, it's really. it's all the same, which is yeah. not a bad thing, you know. I mean, the, I think the only outlier to his whole career was probably The Birds, which is kind of this weird anomaly in his filmography. No, no, he's got some like costume dramas and some melodramas and stuff that don't quite fit into his thriller fare. Um, uh, I mean, this guy made a <laughs> lot of movies. I mean, let's yeah. see, Dial you know. M for Murder in 3D. Yeah, oh, geez. exactly. <laughs> uh, which he made, you know, that Dial M for Murder is really interesting because it was made during this time when he was playing around with doing very, very long of shots very long takes and there's a movie yeah. i think it's called under capricorn uh that i've seen of his that's pretty maligned and like people generally yeah. do not like under capricorn i don't mind it at all um one of the themes you'll see here is that i have pretty high tolerance for like melodrama and uh, <laughs> um so i actually quite like it i think Ing ingrid bergman in that movie is all the women in that movie are astounding they're all given these like huge absurdist telenovela like soliloquies and they're amazing it's like teaching you what acting really is supposed to be like um, oh wow but in in under capricorn i mean they're terribly written but they're amazingly performed um <laughs> But in Under Capricorn, he's he's shooting with one shot. He builds whole sets. His camera moves pretty fluidly, considering it's a movie from 1949, and these cameras are massive. And that you know, it moves pretty fluidly through these full sets of these mansions that he built. And um, and his takes will be like six minutes long in that movie, seven minutes wow. long. So wow. um, and he he moves, he goes on to Dial in for Murder, and he and you know that whole theatrical thing he did with Dial in for Murder, where it's very obviously you're on a sound stage that is almost like a theater stage, and um, and he has these very long takes, and uh, so I thought that's a very interesting experiment that he tries later in his career. Yeah, the, the one I the one I'm most uh, familiar with is Rope, where it's like yes. uh, ten minute long takes. He basically just shot one entire reel, yes. and then it would fade to black, and then it would bring up the next reel, and the next part of the scene would continue. It's meant to be one long scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I have issues with that movie overall, but I think it's a very, very interesting experiment. Uh, right. Yeah, and um, yeah, exactly. I'm with you. Yeah. but he shot it very much like a play, Rope. You know, yeah, he was like it, messing it, around. It became with a play. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this film, uh, the modern thriller, that I mean, one thing that uh, has been pointed out with uh, Hitchcock's films is that so many of the characters are average, ordinary people that mm. don't ever seek out the authorities to solve their problems. Right. And his reasoning for it was, well, because that's boring. Yeah. Th this is the perfect example of, well, why don't they just go get the cops? Well, because that would be boring. And the, it's the prime example of the thing I always say on Film Rescue, because the movie needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, because the movie has to happen. The, you want to see these people rescue their child from these these horrible assassins. Well, and at that time, self-policing was basically how things were done. Like, the police departments were small. They were not the standing armies that they are at this time. So, like, yeah. even knowing if there was a cop nearby to be available to you, like, 
oh, maybe, who knows? But like, we're smart people that can figure this out is kind of the mindset, which is why we had so many mobs running around killing people. It was the lead in the water. <laughs> <laughs> and now it just fortunately we seem to have just cops doing all the killing. Right. But anyways, um, with regards to this movie, I, I this is in Criterion, and I understand its purpose in film history. I understand it. My thoughts on the film after watching it, it's fine. Hmm. But big f- it's fine. <laughs> I, I I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I think it's acceptable. I think it's good. Um, I think it looks really well for the time. Um, Bro. Okay. Peter, Peter Laurie's gang of ethnically vague Europeans who- <laughs> Oh, yeah. Who, <laughs> the proto-Nazis. <laughs> who use these, like, old pagan ladies in their sun worshiping church <laughs> yes as some sort of cover for like some crazy political cabal assassination thing is so bonkers and awesome i agree with you that look the whole first half of this movie it's technically questionable there's um really bad rear screen projection which hitchcock oh yeah yeah leaned into uh, you know, there's all these questionable backdrops that are supposed to be the Alps, and his blocking is fucked up too. Like, which is oh actually, yeah, like <laughs> it, it, I don't understand. You know, if you watch the Lodger made seven years previous to this, it, his blocking is much more sound. And in general, I think the Lodger is a is a is a much more interesting movie technically from mm. his point of view. However, at the halfway mark, right about when they start on a close up of big giant teeth outside of the dentist office. <laughs> this movie gets awesome. This movie is awesome. There's a crazy Nazi dentist who tortures people that is definitely, definitely has to be like the precursor to the Marathon Man. I was just uh, thinking it. <laughs> you know, has to be. Like, is it safe? Right? Mm. And, uh, and uh, there's, there's that. And, and I just cannot get over how much fun everything is in the whatever the church of the seventh ray i will say called? when he when they're destroying all the chairs and throwing amazing them that was great yeah amazing that was and great hitchcock can't help but make it a buddy like comedy right it's like yeah. it's like he can't <laughs> keep from being like that um and peter laurie's incredible peter laurie's insanely watchable and the yeah. assassination at an albert hall sequence uh is is clean and simple edna best is amazing Bro, she she's a sharpshooter. Is this the first movie in history where a woman is actually the decisive action taker at the end of the film that saves yeah. the day? I don't know if it's the first, but it's, it's I can't think of an earlier example. Um, so I actually really, really had a lot of fun with this movie once we hit the halfway mark. And that's not too big of a, a hurdle to get over because the movie's like an hour and 16 minutes. So. See, I, yeah, that's the big difference, I think, between these two versions is that the remake is about 45 minutes longer. Yeah, they really yeah. pack a lot more in there. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it, it's, it, I mean, I, well, I, I have, a, I have a, th- a small theory on that when we get there. I yeah. actually kind of want to defend the first half Nice. I, I really okay. think I really think Bob and Jill's whole like, um, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf act? <laughs> that crazy that, cucking that's going on. That, oh, like, that, that's the funniest. Sh- I was cracking it's mean. up. It's so mean, but it's so funny because he's playing along with it. Like, yeah. The, and and then she like leads the bit later with her friend, and yeah, I, yeah. I really love I really love that kind of interplay. Like it, 
this version, the the original is so much funnier to me. Just every single se- the chair throwing sequence is just Amazing. the cap end on the ma- this madcap joke run. Yes, because it's dark. Otherwise, it's too dark without the jokes. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that I I can 100 defend how totally bonkers this movie is. Like how like it is everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But it. But I'm with you though. It's so much more fun. Like um, there is, and I don't want to start comparing the two films just yet. But there is a uh, there is a uh, they kind of try to go for a little bit of physical comedy because again, yeah. Hitch- Hitchcock can't help himself. In in the in the fifty six version, you know, when in the church, and it's kind of at the same point in the story when Stuart is like holding on to the door, and they're trying to pull him away from the door and all this stuff. But right. it's just not the same. It's just not as fun as nah. the crazy chair throwing. Like it just boils all this global or at least European politics uh, that that they have already kind of mentioned could lead to another world war yeah uh, this assassination attempt which you know by the way the real world was like world war ii was looming when they made this fascism yeah, was yeah. on the rise all over right. europe and um you know and it and, and and yet he just gets and then it all boils down to them throwing chairs at each other yeah in this like old lady pagan church this pagan old lady church it's the best and then when when we're getting to the finale, that whole shootout sequence is Amazing. so overly long. Like yes! it's so like and it's so slow too. And like <laughs> it felt I just like love it. It felt like the the finale of like uh, the newer Fast and Furious movies, where it's just like, is this still going on? Like this is still <laughs> happening. Oh wow. Okay. That's a hell of a leap right there to get from this to that, but okay, I'll go with it. No, 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 no. That is dead on, man. Because again, once again, really, really emphasizing the historical import of this film. Because is that it? Is that the that massive last act action scene? What do we get? We got King Kong right before this year, right? We, King Kong comes right. out right before this, yep. so that yep. is also I- a template for the modern blockbuster. We got um, Little Caesar comes out like i guess in 1930 which has got like a a really cool gun battle in it but it's very rare to have these big action set pieces and this movie is so british it's so staid like so that so that yes if i describe it to you if i just say like oh man there's like soldiers and cops and it's the streets of london and they're sieging this london flat and people are shooting and there's dead bodies all around peter laurie's feet that doesn't really explain how like slow and yeah. steady handed this sequence is, but it really is a last, it's a huge last act action beat. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you can't deny that place in history, how important that has become to movies. It it feels so small and quaint now in comparison, yes. like just for yeah. how big we can make movies, but I'm looking at 1934 you know what I mean? Like, and this is this is as big as they could go. And there's like there's one um off screen like shot that can be heard every two seconds. Yeah. It's like perfectly timed and dropped in police fire from the street. And I'm like, Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess if you hadn't done a big shootout in movies before, this is probably about where you'd land. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I honestly it's I I, I totally understand that it's very staid. I mean, I do want to talk what about how interesting it is to be it's be so British 
because um, you know it's quite like stiff upper <laughs> upper lipish, mm. and I believe maybe I made mm-hmm. this up, but I think I remember some police taking some tea in the middle of the shootout or something. Like it's almost like Hitchcock is mocking the British sensibility. <laughs> and uh, and well, I there's that scene at the end where they go into the uh, the civilian's house and they're like trying to find a way through into the church and yes so, and he's just there's they're moving i think the piano the piano the rest, yeah and it's like they're just they just do not give a shit about invading this guy's home but but it's still <laughs> very proper like you know what i mean exactly like everybody's offered every he offers them a drink he helps take the plant off the piano like everything's very british and i think that later in the 56 film we're gonna see hitchcock make that same kind of subtle uh mockery at a culture but to like the big dumb american culture Mm. like the bombastic you know i think well we see that in the 56 version um where everything he's mocking about british culture here he he also in turn mocks about american culture um so so hitchcock is the og south park he's just he's gonna go after (laughs) everybody (laughs) yeah i think so i think so because i don't think hitchcock is it's unusual to see him be so british even in these earlier films and he was so good at being american later which is to say bombastic and catty and dramatic over dramatic you know what i mean like later when he moves to the american system i feel like he was eating that shit up i honestly oh he loved it yeah he loved it i mean he was you know a very smart observant culturally observant person so um but yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this film, especially the last 45 minutes. And I don't mind how, how sluggish it feels by modern standards at all. I, I, I will say, uh, I'm sorry, kind of, the, the one yeah. big problem I have with both of these movies, there is no denouement or no like closure. No, yeah. They, they, I, that bothers me with these kinds of films. It, it feels like somebody diving out of a... a airplane like skydiving away from you and you don't have a parachute it's like oh wait oh we're done oh okay oh <laughs> all right we're done uh i love that shit i mean i think i know <laughs> I, I do because you know what i that you really if you really really have dug deep deep into like 80s hong kong action cinema that oh is they it. always ended that way that yeah. is it dude that's how yeah. you end it the, the bad guy dies. He probably is a white person. He probably got wrapped in an American flag and he fell off a building <laughs> onto something and then boom, you're out. Yeah, There's not even I, a credit sequence. It just goes black. I love it. I guess they're assuming that people don't want to see the ambulances show up and you know all the like <laughs> aftercare. I guess maybe we just re- recognize we need an audience aftercare after these yeah, big yeah. <laughs> sequences. Yeah. We're just like, yeah. no, we just need to come down a little bit after all that yeah imagine uh, imagine if like any of like the marvel shit ended with just like oh just stop cut to black Uh, oh okay Uh, no yeah like like a black widow ending with them just landing on the ground and cut to black (laughs) god just nothing in those movies at all jesus christ um there i just recently watched a documentary called all the colors of giallo and you know it's okay if you if you if you're interested in giallo films oh yeah that's on shutter isn't it yeah 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 it's 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 kind of like a it's kind of like a long criterion extra it's it's not very visually interesting but it does have a lot of the actual people talking a bunch of catty shit about each other which is oh, really nice hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but it's surprisingly uh not very visually impressive for something that is supposed to be exploring this incredibly aesthetic genre right. but anyway um but my whole point is that the movie, 
I know it's a documentary. It's just people talking. It doesn't quite, you know, it's not quite the same, but it absolutely dead ends mid thought in the middle of someone's sentence. And the credits come in like a shotgun blast in the middle of the, somebody's, like, somebody's thought. Like it's just midstream idea. Whoa. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, just slam. Oh, I guess we're done. We're out. Okay. Sorry. Uh, it, uh, yeah. And I, and I oh love God. it. It's really makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> God. That's wild. I wonder if they uploaded like a wrong cut. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the whole thing is very, I later found out that the whole thing was actually, um, somebody just did a 4k collection, uh, remastered of like every Giallo trailer ever. It's like two oh, and a half wow. hours of Giallo. Oh my trailers. God. <laughs> it sounds awesome. And, uh, the, I, my understanding is that this was something that was thrown together last minute to kind of promote that or be on that DVD or something. Hmm. It may have just been a, a wrong cut. Not like it hasn't happened. I mean, there's that infamous uh, mummy trailer that got released without the sound. <laughs> you seen that, you seen that, Josh? No. no oh God! Oh, it's hilarious. They they released it without the proper sound effects, and it's just screaming. Yeah. So when the plane's crashing, it's just Tom Cruise screaming over and over again. Just guttural Tom Cruise screaming. Oh, it's the funniest shit ever. Not mixed. <laughs> There's no mix around it. It's just like flat wave audio <laughs> dropped right in there. Amazing. <laughs> God. But anyways, um, so when it comes down to a choice between, I'm probably going to jump back and forth between these two films since they're generally the exact same movie. I've been trying to like not compare the two, but if we're just going to... Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, or, or I was trying to wait until the back half, but but it's it is di- very difficult to talk about them without like. Yeah, going. I mean, I think the the only thing is that the one thing I wish was more present in the original is more of a mystery and more of an investigation, because the the remake there's a lot more of the main character kind of stumbling around trying to figure out yeah. where they are, what's going on. The original they jump right to it. They. Bolt for the finish real quick, <laughs> which is both a good thing and a bad thing, in my opinion. Yeah, well, for half the movie, they set it up, and then, and yeah, and then the other half takes place on the night of the assassination. I mean, I, I like how tight and clean it is. Um, there are aspects of the second film that I did enjoy, and, uh, and some of them are to what you're speaking about, but it, it's nice that this movie is like a little bullet, a little sleek little oiled down otter who slips through your hands and it is over. <laughs> it does feel like that. Like it always feels like it's trying to get to the next cool thing to show you. Yeah. 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 It reminds me a lot of writing comic books to be frank. Like he doesn't have a lot of space. He's not overly concerned with the whole broader picture. And he's just trying to get badass splash pages in front of you as much as he possibly can. Right. Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, detail on the political reasons as to why the assassins are doing what they're doing. We never even get an explanation. Zero. (laughs) They're obviously some kind of of like fascist element from Central Europe, but but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't give a shit. And there really is kind of it's kind of the same in the second one. There's some lip service that oh, it's this prime minister, and yeah, but um, you know, but yeah, he's completely uninterested in politics other than as a motivator for plot. We we were just talking about the lady killers um, last time, and I had noted that like the the villain felt really antiquated because he the purpose within a film from the forties was the villain just needed to be identifiable as a villain. So Alec right. Guinness is so like just over the top creepy, 
and then they had to make Tom Hanks more like a real person. And I, the same thing almost happened here with with Peter Lore. Like he's so identifiably the villain, straight yes. off the cuff. It's like a Bond movie where it's kind of like. I, yeah, I mean, uh, this is probably going to lead to other stuff, but if, they, if they're not going to show us the politics, then I don't care about the politics, so I don't care why he's doing it. He's just evil, I guess. <laughs> Again, like like the fucking Fast and Furious movies. This yeah. is the template for the, <laughs> for the blockbuster thrillers later. Yes. You keep, and- you keep digging at that. And I'm just, Jesus. I, I, I don't mean it to be insulting. I really don't, but like, if, if this is the, the kind of stuff that that he was building the blueprint for, then the, obviously the Fast and Furious is the Xerox of the Xerox. Like, I don't I don't think they're, like, exact one-to-one. I'm just seeing a lot of the same shit in here, and I find that really interesting. You don't, you don't get there without going through this movie. I completely right. agree with you, 100%. Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. this is the ship that launched the ship that launched the ship that got us to yeah, the Fast and Furious. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but wait, there was something that you said... About the villains being identifiable. Yes, about Peter Lorre. Like, here's the thing, man, is like, Peter Lorre is so effortlessly fun to watch in this movie. He's so good at this big, uncanny, weird character um, that I feel like he launched, like, generations of horrible overacting scene munchers. Like, you could see how, like, if you're an actor... And you're watching Peter Lorre do this role. And I think there's a lot of other examples of this too, where really extraordinary actors do these uncanny characters um, and they make it seem like it's effortless, right? Yeah. Like it's, oh, that's just, he's just bringing it, right? And then um, and then I just think thousands of lesser talented actors then go out there and chew up the scenery and they can't handle it and it gets <laughs> out of their control. Even great actors, like I've seen Gary Oldman just be atrocious. Oh, yeah. It's, you know what I oh, mean? Oh, yeah. Just, you know, and, and what, what's you, what's that movie that you keep talking about? Tiptoes. Oh fuck! <laughs> I, I don't even know what that is. G- Gary oh, Oldman God. plays a little person, and he's swinging oh, no. for an Oscar, baby. I mean, he is <laughs> swinging for an Oscar. Oh. Uh, so yeah, that's funny. Uh, I, I definitely want to see that. <laughs> no, you but, don't. No, you yeah, literally yeah, do not. Yeah, you you if you watch it, you are watching it for the oddity that it is, and not for the enjoyment of <laughs> therein. I promise you that. Yeah, it's a two and a half hour movie. There's a ninety minute cut that shows you how much was cut. But I, I see what you're saying there because I'm thinking like, wasn't Boris Badakoff from the um, Rocky and Bullwinkle? Didn't he have like the white stripe in his hair and everything? Like this, yeah, this yeah. feels uh-huh. like a derivative character. Yeah, yeah, of course, and like nobody can do it like Laurie because Laurie is not. Laurie's not reaching for something. Yeah, it's it really feels like true to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like he's just good at it. He he's just really good at it. And um, you know, and I and I think the the second film is sorely missing a Peter Lorre. I mean, it it, it mm. decreases the fun factor for me just tremendously. I, my favorite line of his is uh, towards the end when they're in the shootout, and he's calmly explaining that they're going to have to use the kid to get out of this shootout situation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't are, give a shit at all. People are slowly dying all around him, and he's just like, we're going to have to use the kid. Just, dude, you're evil. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> he will do anything he can to survive. <laughs> it's amazing. I like yeah. how... Um, <laughs> I like how... In Europe, after World War One, and as as World War Two is you know approaching, on the in the horizon on the horizon, I like how they're just so used to political assassinations at this point that they don't even <laughs> stop the concert. 
I mean, they pause, but then they restart the concert after there's yeah. been yeah. <laughs> after there's been a, a major attempt on a, you know a head of a European nation nation's life. Um, I think that that's just amazing, and and also I think speaks to Hitchcock being I would argue purposefully satirical about the English character. And they're like, right ho. Let's get back to the concert now. Sorry <laughs> it for does, the interruption. It does feel like a stereotypical British person. Yeah. Well, I almost read that as a joke in that it felt like he was forcing people to watch a concert. Like just, <laughs> yeah. just like, hey, fuck you. We're gonna watch a concert for a minute, <laughs> and then he doubles down on it in the in the remake. It's an even longer sequence. Oh my where god! It's like, nope, buddy. You're just here to watch a concert. I hope you enjoyed paying for the ticket, motherfucker. I, uh, it's not that I mind it so much, but I really actually do, again, prefer the leanness of the oh, yeah. assassination sequence in the first one. The second one is like, uh, first, I mean, look, this simple thing is clever, Hitch, but I think you're laboring it now. You know what I mean? He like really <laughs> labors it in the second one. It's like, okay. Especially when the, the remake opens with the concert. Oh my God. What's yeah. the subtitle in the beginning of the remake? The symbol crash that changed the lives of these of us. Stop. Stop you're not gonna, doing. yeah. You're not gonna know what that means until you get to the end of the movie. So it's like, why even have it there? I don't know. It kind of paid off for me when I saw the symbols and was reminded of the opening and being like, oh, yeah. okay, I guess we're getting to the end now. But I, I kind of read that again as like his, his kind of the verboseness of Americanism. Like if the next movie yes. is supposed to make fun of us, he's got to pump everything up to the silly point at that point. And I. And I kind of, if it is meant to be some kind of, you know, satirization, I almost respect the balls on him for making it like so much more self-serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed, agreed. And I do think, I really do think, I mean, I don't know how much he wanted his his cake and also wanted to eat it um, as right. far as, you know, as you said, like satirizing the American persona and aesthetic, but, uh, and, but also making a crowd pleaser. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and um, but I do think there is some of that in in that that second film, one hundred percent. Like it's just too. I mean, Doris Day's in a terrible marriage. <laughs> She's just <laughs> in an awful marriage. Yeah, they, they are like, and and they're racists. Like it's really interesting that um, uh, they don't trust the Arab speaking Frenchmen that they meet. But they ultimately end up trusting the English-speaking Anglophiles from London, who end not up, Anglophiles, yeah. but Anglo people from London, and 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 that mistrust. And I do think this is Hitchcock actually being quite smart and 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 thematically more ambitious than he is in the first film. Um, but that mistrust of the swarthy foreigner and trust of the English-speaking white people is what gets them in trouble. Mm. And I that's what makes me think that Hitchcock is playing a larger game here with perceptions and cultural identity and stuff. Um, you know, but that kid's just flat out expressing his parents' uh, racism and cultural insensitivity throughout this whole movie. Oh, like, yeah. it's just on the bus, like, Frenchmen eat frogs. I'm going to grab this fucking woman's dress. I'm gonna, it's <laughs> terrible. And I, also, quick comparison on the child actors. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Nova... Pillbeam or whoever plays the little girl, she's mm -hmm. like ported in from a different movie entirely. She's having this incredible, authentic trauma <laughs> that, like, 
that like radiates off the screen. Like I believe that she's a horrified child and her dad is like here, here, now nowing her and like patting on their head. Dear, dear, I heard, you know, the teacher said you've got a great report card this year. Don't feel down. And she's like actually like emoting a, like a PTSD experience. Right. Like screeching. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 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 it's, I thought she was just incredible and, and almost better than everybody around her, except for Edna Best, who I also thought was awesome in the first movie. And, um, uh, and in the second film, you know, we get this kind of like Midwestern, like white little boy and he's fine. I don't mean to dig on any child actors or anything, but even that feels like a step down or like some kind of statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Of the pairings, I definitely, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure Jimmy Stewart knew the movie he was in entirely. Does he ever? You yeah, know what? Yeah. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> I mean, I'm not of the biggest Jimmy Stewart fan. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I, I mean, I know we're supposed to love him. Yeah, I was gonna make the statement of of um, was Jimmy Stewart really a good actor, or was he good at just being kind of charming? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, I mean, that very common thing in this era, and even to this day, still, right? Is the actor who's really just good at being themselves, and they're incredibly likable, and people want to watch them. You know, help yeah, tell. Look these at stories. any movie. Like, compare his character in this film to the man that shot Liberty Valance. They're the same person, and he's also a bit of a mincer. You know, he kind yeah. of minces around a little bit. Jack Lemmon was like that too. Or I'm like, ah. And then when mm-hmm. you see them with, um, you see them with like real real actors. Uh, I, that's a terrible thing to say. I don't <laughs> even say that. these are very these are very beloved actors. Uh, with who people really, really, you know feel a connection to but when you see them against like if you watch the apartment and you see jack lemon against what's her name shirley mclean it's you know it's like uh, i'm watching someone authentically become a character and and next to this rubber faced (laughs) caricature uh, you know um so i i'm that's probably also another very unpopular opinion but i get that a little bit with jimmy stewart although i will say even though I think Doris Day in the second film, I think her character is shockingly disempowered compared to what the Edna Best character got to do. In the oh, movie. God, yeah. 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 Uh, can, can we talk about the weird scene where he drugs her? That just, uh, no. <laughs> just... Yeah, she's in an awful marriage. Like, she, she, First of all, she's like an international theater <laughs> performer, like actress, uh, internationally known, and he's a doctor in the Midwest, and she gave up her career for this dude. Like, it's crazy. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, but so so they, they really disempower Day's character. But I do believe one thing that we, that I, you know, will acquiesce about these two films is the second film is definitely tonally more consistent. Oh, yeah. And, and, and and I do believe that Doris Day and even to a certain degree Jimmy Stewart they do authentically portray parents in terror of losing their child. There is this you know Dor- Day when she needs to be emotional. I think she's incredibly convincing. Um, so you know in that regard, whereas you know the, the the parents in the first film never really feel like they're in danger of losing their child. They're sort of kind of there's some emotionalism but it, it it's not really sold all that well and i do think yeah. that um that the second film does a better job of that but that's really all that day is given to do 
you know, oh, uh, uh, and sing K Sarasara, which makes me want to stab myself in the eye. I'm, I'm glad Hitchcock didn't live long enough to see The Lion King and realize that Hakuma, Hakuna Matata just became it's our... just K Sarasara. <laughs> <laughs> we just became our running theme. He was like, he just predicted that shit, man. Yeah, I will... The only proper time I've ever heard K Sarasara be used is when we watched Mary and Max about a year ago. So oh, love yeah. that movie. Yeah. Oh, God, that, that's... Oh, God damn, that movie... <laughs> What's that? What's that thing uh, from Robot Chicken? He keeps kicking me in the deck. <laughs> Why? Why does he keep kicking me in the deck? But uh, yeah, the Hitchcock said of these two films, he said, "Let's say the first version is the work of a talented amateur, and the remake yeah. is made by a professional." Would you guys agree with that statement? From that Truffaut interview. Yeah, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. I mean, it, well, look, it's it's his statement to make, you know. I mean, he he's allowed yeah. to identify himself however he wants. I would I would take it. I would uh, explain it differently, personally. Um, I don't know Seth how you would do it, but I would say uh, the first one is the uh, work of a young punk artist <laughs> who's like, you know, who's like boldly making choices, taking cracks at their craft that maybe they don't quite fully have a grasp on but they're they're really swinging for the fences as young artists very often do and the second one is kind of an old master resting on his budget mm. honestly and not yeah. and not second guessing his creative choices not being critical of his own critical choices because um there's a lot of great things in this movie but there's also a lot of things that just sort of you know like don't are 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 overplayed, overcooked, overdramatic. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like we walk into that taxidermist's office. You know, I mean, you know, and, and a younger Hitchcock, I guarantee you, would have come up with some crazy batshit scene <laughs> to happen in that amazing taxidermy set. What piece. a set piece! But mm-hmm. nothing happens. It's just the wrong place. It's just a waste of of a space, and it's you know. So you've got an older guy who doesn't ma- doesn't isn't really thinking about keeping his story terse, isn't really thinking about the best use of his assets, mm. but he but he is uh, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, and he's just kind of doing that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm having weird thoughts of like, well, this kind of reminds me of when George Lucas went back and reworked his original Star Wars trilogy. I mean, it's not uncommon for a filmmaker to return to their previous work and decide they don't like something or they want to adjust something. It's not uncommon. Uh, but Spiel, uh, I think that uh, Lucas is the most egregious offender of that. <laughs> I think, But in, in this case, it's more he wanted to just make adjustments because he was a different person. It's like, yeah. Com- compare it to somebody like Spielberg who did the original Indiana Jones trilogy. And then he got roped into doing the fourth one and it does not feel like a movie made by him yeah. because he's a different person. You I know, don't have any... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I was just saying, like, it doesn't feel like he had his heart in it. And you can just see it in interviews when he's talking about Crystal Skull. He's like, I just am here because George asked me to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Seth, your thoughts on that? I don't know anything about, very quickly, I'm so sorry. I don't know anything about why Hitchcock chose to remake this. I mean, do we really know? Was it really because he was dissatisfied and thought he could take another crack at it or was it just like a monetary thing i mean the the first one was his first huge hit it like changed his career forever he was on his way out people were like not interested in working with him oh, after wow. uh 
yeah, 34, like the 34 version changed everything for Hitchcock and really kind of every, I mean, as I've said already, everything for movies in general. But, um, but yeah, Seth, what's your vibe on that, on whether this is, yeah, this is. This uh, I re- I read right here. He did this to fulfill a contractual demand with Par- Paramount Pictures. See there, <laughs> that's and he's he was. A, yeah, yeah, he's a myth maker, man. He's not going to tell you the truth in interviews and shit about why he does things. He's he's too, he's too into the idea of making his own myth. Right. Well, and like, and I kind of, I so I support it on that end. Like I, when I look at his filmography, of there's course. there's maybe two or three others that I would have been like, if I could pick the Hitchcock self remake, I would pick, you know, probably this one. That like this feels like mm-hmm. a really smart move for for a director to be like, yeah, I mean, this one helped my career take off. I could kind of flex everything I've learned. I could maybe re-express mm-hmm. it in a new way. I don't have to work too hard at this. The budget's pro-. like I could see this being like a really fun kind of project for a director to set up for himself without having knowing that it's not going to be the most stressful year of filmmaking you know just he's done it before you get all the confidence of having done it before so i I respect it for that um your your analogy about the you know kind of punk mindset to workman mindset i think really rings true when i when i consider like how how tight this version is as like a as a tonal piece like all the pieces really kind of fit together versus the the original just being like this scene needs to be the most this at this yeah. time <laughs> yeah exactly and yeah. and i love i love the like it kind of becomes this like um Michelin tire inflatable man of like just all these segments that I really like kind of walking around like a person. And then I look at this one and like I see, you know, an entirely um, imagined story that that executes. And and so when I compare the two, I think I'm just more endeared to the first one for how lumpy it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I mean, I have always uh, but more so once I became a person who actually made art that was that was put out into the world for strangers to consume uh and that really that really changed my view of art and and made me appreciate spirit more than craft Mm. it's not that craft isn't important but once i put my own work out there and was reminded of my limitations and my flaws by the audience (laughs) uh, it it really made me (laughs) It really made me appreciate limitations and flaws and others. Have you ever digested your own work before? I'm actually kind of curious if there's if you recognize any ways in which you've like tr- taken a second pass at something you've tried before. I don't know that I've ever really had that opportunity. I mean, I'd have to think about it. I certainly, um, I certainly have like themes that I can't let go of. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, and there are, um, and there are times and i used to fight this but i'm fighting it less and less as i get more and more comfortable uh but uh uh, creating stuff but there are certainly times when i'll be writing mostly if i'm writing several things at once or if i've written a few things and nothing has come out for a while like for instance during the pandemic where Mm. i had a backlog of material that had not been published yet um where i'm essentially if i if i really look at it at a certain angle i can see that they're all the exact same story <laughs> i'm just writing the same thing over and over and over again with a different skin until somebody will fucking publish it so i can get it out of my system but um uh but I, i've never really not to this extent where i've literally taken a thing you know that i haven't worked on 
uh, in 10 years, 20 years, and either re- redone it or made a sequel. Or I've, not, I've not had that opportunity to do it so clearly like that. And I don't know that I would. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is there anything you would want to? Not off the top of my head. I'd have to think of There are certainly characters that I miss, but when you put something behind you like that, you know, it feels like a complete thing. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, it feels like it's it's a record of that moment in my life and, and how I was cognitively and what I thought things should be narratologically and mm. characterologically. I don't really, do I want, you know, I don't, do I, would I, do I want to go back to that? I don't know. Yeah. But I do, I do have an affinity for characters. Yeah. Um, no, I totally get that. And yeah. I think that's, that's the best way to describe uh, your work as comparison to Hitchcock is that you would go back to your work. No, let me, let me say you would go back to your work because out of choice, whereas with this remake, he did it to fulfill a contract with Paramount. Right. That's and, the difference. And look, well, I would say the only thing that, that makes that difference possible is that Hitchcock was a beloved and popular creator. So that, he, so that people demanded he make work for them. You are very am, beautiful to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I need, Seth. That is all I need. But, but no one's out there banging down the doors for, like, the Violet Messiah's remake. Nobody gives a yes! shit. Yes! <laughs> so uh, I think the only thing really separating Hitchcock from me, and this is a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous sentence. No, I, yeah, this setup, mouth. I'm ready for the rest of the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing separating him from me is that he's a genius and I'm just a stoned asshole somewhere trying to make it through my day. Uh, otherwise, we're exactly the same. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. <laughs> otherwise. But it, I know we've been kind of slagging on this remake and we've kind of like, we're basically saying like, it's, it's definitely a flabbier version. It's, I, it's, it's 45 minutes longer than the original. I'll put it this way. If the original and it feels like an hour longer, if the original didn't exist, I would, I think love this movie more for not knowing it's a good movie. that there's another one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good movie. Yeah. It, it's just, it doesn't feel as, as, uh, ambitious i guess you could say it does feel like it's it's it lacks ambition it lacks drive it's it's a lot of beautiful shots it's beautiful it's beautifully choreographed there's some amazing cinematography some great performances but at the same time it just you kind of got all of that also with the original film right which also had more of a personal investment it goes out of its way to over explain too like the original you don't even have to see the shooting in the original because we know we get yeah. a big shootout later on, whereas the remake is like, no, we're gonna walk you through this whole this whole shooting situation. We're gonna cut up to the balcony like five times, and it's yeah. really excessive in its editing, and yes. and that's really like that's where the flab is is showing the most. Yes. Like that's the muffin top of the movie. It is edited just robustly. Just here, have all of the footage. Here, have more. Yes. yes. Agreed. Thank 100%. you, Zack Snyder. Thank you. <laughs> I, look, I mean, I think that, you know, other than that, I mean, I actually agree. I, I think that the editing is quite, quite robust. Um, uh, but uh, spiritually, I just prefer the first film. I just, I think it has a spirit yeah. in it. And I don't know that this does have a spirit in it. I, you know what it is? The, the original is the bare knuckle version of the boxing glove that is the second one. <laughs> Perfect. That's a good way of putting it. 
I love it. But look, you know, but but this is not but this is not a bad film. No. Uh, especially those those um those beats of Stuart walking. It's so much more boring him going to the church in this one than it is in the original. But the when Hitchcock remembers that suspense only occurs when people shut the fuck up and don't talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he has Stuart walking around the church to that Bernard Herrmann score, which is actually very turns quite modern and eerie and ambient during that sequence that is where that's the hitchcock flex yeah right that's the thing where like in every single hitchcock movie no matter what you think about that movie um or no matter how far below down you think it falls in the tier of his achievements there will always be at least one scene uh where no one is talking and where pure cinema is just flexing yeah and you're just like oh that's that's the guy that's the guy that we talk about when we talk about hitchcock Mm. and i i I think that scene is uh is there when stewart is just literally walking around a church yeah he's just casing a church that's what hitchcock does well um but there's a lot of self-indulgences in the movie (laughs) that you know that the whole dinner scene where they're trying to eat the chicken and it's like how you're supposed to properly eat chicken in marrakesh and i'm like do we need this? Is this necessary? That's what I think is Hitchcock making fun of Americans. Oh, yeah. Like, look at- they, d- they don't know how to <laughs> properly eat over in uh, that culture. Well, or, or just they just don't. They're 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 just self-involved narcissistic xenophobes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. culturally insensitive. He's just a dick. He's not interested in learning how they eat. He's not like actually there to experience the culture. He's there to like force his own way of eating. On it's fu- it's funny that they show up to this country with no translator or anything, and it's like <laughs> what, what you're just busting in on holiday. All right, homie. And like no even real sense of a desire to be there. Yeah, like they really they want to be around their own. You know, remember at Doris Day as they walk up to this hotel that was obviously built by French colonial rule and is st- and nothing but white people are staying there. And as they, and Doris Day is like, now this is more like it. <laughs> like ah, <laughs> back back in the arms of colonial rule. Yeah, make it a sandals ah, Jamaica, and it's the same joke today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I do think that's intentional. And I actually, yeah. and, you know, I do think that that's Hitchcock making fun of Americans in a way that the American audience will not notice. And I also think that it's a callback I, to the original intentions where he's making fun of British people in a way British yeah. people don't yeah. notice in the first one. I, well, he loved to push people's buttons as a filmmaker. And a yeah, like, he was a like, dick. Yeah, like the shadow of a doubt has the uh, undertone of incest between yes. the, the niece and the uncle. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think that's what he was trying to do. I'm sorry. I keep stepping on you, Seth, but uh, I think that's what he was trying to do with the whole cuckolding oh, stuff. Yeah. In the, <laughs> the, the first one is he's, he's basically trying to tell the audience. He's like, Oh, this, these people are in an open relationship. But yeah. He's dealing with censors and he's dealing with, you know, all the sort of, uh, rigidity of the time the social rigidity i almost i almost read it as like <clears throat> he might have been gay like that like mm-hmm. she was a beard like i that you could easily yeah. read oh, that yeah. situation <laughs> and that makes I it fu- that. that makes the joke even funnier to me i don't i like it works i i think one of the the best sequences within the two doesn't matter which one is the church sequence where they're singing the directions to each other of where to look oh yeah <laughs> yes. that reminds me of yes. a fucking mr bean sketch like that is just yes. straight 
like church comedy in the middle of our political assassination thriller. I just and there's a great visual beat to that too. Yeah, where, where Jimmy Stewart is, is in the second one where he's like trying to sit behind the column, but he's just such a big oafish fucking right. Lad. <laughs> yeah, I got vibes of uh, the scene that's in uh, the Bicycle Thief, um, where they're constantly pushing their way through the church and disrupting the service because. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was remind me the director of Bicycle Thief? Remind me the director's name. Desika. Thank you, thank you. Uh, he was profoundly anti-religion, and Hitchcock also was uh, very anti-religion. Fuck yeah! So he would take any opportunity <laughs> he could to criticize religion whenever he could. So I, I saw shades of that in both well, of these it's, movies. It's interesting because in the second film, it's like a non-denominational uh kind of like you know maybe it's it's certainly christian it never says what they're a part of yeah 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 so you they could theoretically not even be christian yeah in the second one but in the first one he's just full-on pagan old pagan biddies yeah little old ladies sun worshipers and i i could not be happier with that choice (laughs) and i I, it's very possible that i can sit here and intellectualize why i prefer the first film to the second one all day long and come up with all these reasons for it but it really is possible that the moment i realized we were in a church of old lady sun worshipers i just said this is my movie this is the movie for me (laughs) and i'm i'm just gonna you know bullshit i'm come up with bullshit reasons why but it's about this church of the seventh ray i just love it (laughs) it would be funnier if in the remake they were satanists that'd be funny (laughs) That would instantly gain 10 points for me because oh, I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're totally Satan worshipers that are trying to assassinate someone. I totally get it. Uh, absolutely. Speaking of which, <laughs> this is the kind of movie that I would not mind a remake of every 20 years. Just, <laughs> I love that. See, that's you can do Psycho, a new version. That's of this. my defense yeah. for Psycho is that there should be some film. I don't care if it's Mary Shelley's Frank, not film, but some, some story that the culture holds close to itself that. Every generation of filmmakers should be forced by law to do a take on, <laughs> and they can they can do that take any way they like. But we discussed got... that with with Sorcerer. We said yeah. it's yes, the director's litmus right. test. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. we also we didn't mention this. There's an episode of Mandalorian that is just Sorcerer. Yeah, and it's one of the best episodes. It's the Bill Burr episode where you get his whole backstory, where he has more character development than Ray did in three fucking movies. True. Oh, it's fantastic. It's a great episode. I have never seen The Mandalorian, but I do get the vibe in general that that show uh, does I don't think it's of, for you. That's fine. I, but the, I do like the idea that it sort of thrives on remaking these kind of cl- this like classic art cinema black and into white these pre-V- Star Wars. Yeah, pre-60s yeah, stuff. It, yeah, it's, it's inspired by yeah. all of that. Yeah. Because it's like Lone Wolf and Cub, yep. right? I, can, I see fingerprints of really classic... Uh, foreign film thrillers all over that show, and I, I certainly admire that and respect that. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Sorcerer episode is is very very good. It's very it's quality entertainment. <laughs> I think it's also the last time we saw Gina Carano on screen, and it I is. say good for that. <laughs> good for that. But uh, here's a here's a question I want to ask: Did Hitchcock ever make a straight up bad movie, like just failed entirely? I I'm not familiar enough with his. I know this is I know this is all relative. This is all a matter of of opinion. But is there any movie that's ever like just just poor? Well, and it's also you know I mean I I don't has any of us seen every Hitchcock film? Yeah, like when I look through, I've seen I've seen maybe maybe a hair more than a half dozen. 
but there's a bunch of these that I've just never seen before. Yeah, I've seen 17 uh, Hitchcock films to date. Um, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my letterbox now. I'm trying to see if I go show watch films and I look at how I feel about things. I mean, I have a lot of opinions that don't, um, don't register with most people. Like I, I think Rear Window is an incredible uh, piece of technical filmmaking with some extraordinary concepts in image within image within image, but also very boring and lame. You know, I, I'm not a bit, not a big fan of Thank this. God. Like, somebody agrees with me. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, just a straight up bad film. I'm looking at the films that I've seen and I have not seen uh, one. No, like I, I even enjoy the trouble with Harry uh, I guess isn't Torn Curtain supposed to be bad? I've only seen a few of his silent films. I mean, I really quite like The Lodger, uh, and I don't know. I liked Under Capricorn. That's and that's probably the worst Hitchcock film I've seen, and I like that. Mister mm. and Missus Smith, not that one, Seth. <laughs> I've never seen very that. different, very different movie. I, I I'd still say personal favorite is still probably Vertigo. There's a I know that's a, I, I, that's a, you know, what's the term I'm looking for here? It's, it's very pretty. Um, Vertigo is a very pretty movie. Yes. It, it's a, uh, what's the term I'm looking for here? Pretentious. That's like, <laughs> oh yeah, you love the movie you watched in film school. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I like it. I, I, I really love North it. by, I'll, I'll, I'll always vouch for North by. The one I don't care for is the birds. I don't, I don't know. I just, birds never did anything for me. Yeah. Birds is, birds is a, a yeah. Birds is a is a um, harbinger of the future of of horror cinema, <laughs> but harbinger. it's not like <laughs> like like uh like Birdemic. Exactly. God damn it! You don't get you can't get to Birdemic without going through Birds. But I mean, I've got to say, and if we're gonna be you know painfully obvious and choose the most obvious, but uh, I mean, I it's got to be Psycho, man. I mean, Psycho changes everything, like the entire it's, horror yeah. genre. Yeah. It's, it's got to be psycho. I mean, it, the the growth he makes also, like what he. So if you really look at, just look at the slasher, the idea, the subgenre in horror of the slasher. So you go, it goes crimmy, like German crimmy films, then that goes, and then Psycho, and then Giallo, and then the American slasher. Any of those four stepping stones, it. it uh, don't get you to where we eventually got mm. in the 80s and where we are now with the slasher genre. Yeah. And, and Psycho is the only one that isn't a genre, isn't a movement that occurred in a culture. Psycho is the only one that is one single film of those four steps that get us there. And uh, and, and you, you just can't, you cannot pass. If you're a horror fan, you cannot jump over psycho in that moment and continue to see how horror cinema progresses yeah it doesn't it doesn't progress past psycho if you don't pay attention to psycho yeah so, you don't get to friday the 13th or halloween no, or anything like no that. none of that none of that or, or even psycho. even viral marketing i was reading recently that the reason we have set film times now is because of psycho because he was trying to make sure people wouldn't come in in the middle of the movie mm. and just sit through a screening into the next part. He was like, "No, only allow certain, uh, or uh, only allow people in at the beginning, and then let them out so the next group can go in and see it from start to finish." Because that was keeping the the twist alive, and so it was like a word of mouth viral marketing thing that changed mm -hmm. how we watch movies. Literally, how we watch them today. That's nuts. 
Uh, I have to make a correction. I've been wanting to make this since I stated it, but you know, when we started this podcast, I had not spoken to an individual. I had just woken up 15 minutes before we started recording, <laughs> and I had not had a cup of coffee, and I had spent all night, uh, last night, watching uh, Lifetime movies high. So I was in a really, really bad mindset <laughs> when we started. And and so when I was talking about dial in for murder earlier with the long shots and everything, mm-hmm. Jesse, in the minute you said it, Jesse, I, I knew that I was, it, it was rope that I was talking about. And you came in and you brought up rope based on what I was talking about because you, you, you were totally <laughs> on target. Dial in for murder is not the movie in which he does those very long takes in. It's rope and it's the very underseen under Capricorn. And I'm not sure if there's a third film in which he tried to do that exercise, that, that different way of shooting but um, there's there's longer takes the there's longer takes in the man who knew too much like there's some some long sitting uh camera shots that i was noticing throughout like it's n- there's not as much movement i think as what he was able to invent uh yeah. over his lifetime but there's it's definitely in there like once you get good at a skill like that as a director that's something you keep around because it's it's useful i love it i love a good long camera shot man i hate you know things getting all chopped up in the editing room yeah, his framing and blocking is much stronger in the remake than it is in the original. Yeah, with the church scene, with the church when she's going around with the collection plate, and she and she walks up to James Stewart, and she's looking at the camera as if we're seeing it through his POV. Mm-hmm. That that wasn't achievable at the time that the original was made. The cameras were just way too big and bulky to accomplish yeah. something like that yeah. and they yeah. weren't capable of doing it so yeah there's they, like there's these slight improvements that i'm like okay yeah i can, I, I see why you maybe wanted to add that they do that I mean, late, I, yeah they, uh, they do ahead. that later on too uh when he rushes the door to go after his kid um mm-hmm. that they push the camera through that and the guy steps out from the belfry um there, there's they're definitely moving the camera around in the remake like or yeah th- and that's uh, that's the technical stuff that i love watching him flex yes. as a director like oh yes. yeah you did learn some cool shit in the last 20 years yes. didn't you yeah and i i mean i i do there are lots of parts of the the 34 version that is technically creaky i think i mean i the whole uh the whole opening sequence uh, in the Alps is is just looks like shit. <laughs> it's just, and it's also <laughs> audio wise, it's, it's oh, the it's sound really, is terrible. It's yeah, awful. It yeah, it's it's awful. And you've got this just this little girl who's just fucking up everyone's sport. Like literally, <laughs> no one can play a game without her fucking it up around her, whether it's shooting skeet or long jumping. But um, uh, but you know, there's a lot that's that's technically missing from the first film and i think that's what hitchcock is talking about and it's very common i think for artists to not really know what is what is really the strength of their work like we don't really know of the stuff that we make like we have the things that we love about our work or that we're trying striving to achieve in our work and for hitchcock i'm sure he was striving for much of his career to achieve a, a, a technical fluency that was, you know, extra that was seemingly flawless, which mm. he often did achieve, I think. And um, and so you could see how if he's really focused more on technical fluency and he's kind of lost his passion for poking the audience with a stick, right? You can you can see how he would prefer the remake over the original because it is technically more proficient unquestionably i mean there's no doubt you know um so yeah but it lacks the ambition that the original Mm. had it just it 
Is and that, it goes a long way to be ambitious. Is there an example of of filmmakers who like got their punk rock back? You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like if you if, hmm. if, if the way I'm viewing this is like if oh you start, uh, George George Miller George Miller oh George Miller got his punk rock back yeah hold the fuck on he fuck did. yeah you got it <laughs> I love this this is good I, I'm I'm really digging this train of thought but when did George Miller lose his punk rock You're saying like Happy Feet Lorenzo's Oil that that. Uh, well, uh, they're they're definitely for a more corporate, uh, wider spread audience to you know make money off yeah. of merchandising opportunities. I'll put it. There's not as much punk rock in Happy Feet for the little that there is. I do see it in there. I don't. <laughs> it's buried in there, but it's it's buried. Unfortunately, it's Where like they're pebbles. To... Like literally, I think they make that metaphor in the movie about the pebbles <laughs> being like the valuable. Like, I I don't have an issue. I love that he went and made kids movies while he had kids i think that's the coolest fucking thing that in and of itself is a punk rock move but you can't deny that like happy feet was a little more punk rock than mad max in in i think that uh, yeah i mean i think he's making and maybe this is what you mean and now i'm just fascinated by this this preset but like i think he's making a choice right he's not losing it he's not kind of like growing out of it he's making a choice he's like look we gotta gotta make this kids movie and but but i think babe picking the pig in the city is punk rock oh no yeah i agree with that i see i'll there's I will like see a you prostitute dog there's a you know it's like it's amazing i mean it's kafka-esque babe pig in the city so yeah. yeah but but i do hear what you're saying and and i think that's a fine example of a director who got their punk rock back i think it's very you know i think a lot about this um a lot of our our favorite uh, artists in all mediums they grow older and and their work becomes less less prescient and either we you know either we lose interest in them in the way that say i've lost interest in ridley scott even though Ooh. there was a time when, when i thought ridley scott was the most interesting english-speaking filmmaker in the world you're telling me you uh, skipped house of gucci how dare you <laughs> <laughs> it looks like every time i watch the trailer it looks like a saturday night live skit that's but, what um, it is it's straight up what it is uh, josh did I, did I send you that clip that was uh the nicole kidman amc commercial and they spliced in the the sex scene where lady Gaga gets railed by Adam Driver in House of Gucci. No, it's just, it's, but it's, oh, I would it's like hilarious. to watch Adam Driver have sex with Lady Gaga, though. I would it's absolutely pay his, for that. It's fucking hysterical. It's just Nicole Kidman just smiling in a movie theater, just watching her just get pounded by Adam Driver. It's fucking <laughs> hysterical. It sounds hot. Uh, but I, It's um, very not. It's very not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what was my point? Oh, yeah. Oh, but, but. You know, but then there are other artists that we forgive. Uh, for instance, John Carpenter. As far as I'm concerned, John Carpenter's, even if it, I don't f- have such an affinity for his last films, uh, and actually the same could be said of Hitchcock, um, for the for the, the latter films, I still think he gave so much to the culture that he has every right to rest on his laurels. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Allow it. Yeah. But I think about that a lot. Like, what causes an, uh, uh, an artist as they grow older and have had some success to kind of be a little bit less hungry and, and make a little bit less ambitious work? You know, I, I find it, it's, it's very interesting to see how people kind of age out of their ambition or whatever. See that—that's why I thought George Miller was such a great example because yeah. Fury Road, 
he he basically got this opportunity, right? He gets to go back and do his Mad Max thing again on a big budget, make the, the like, you know, blow the doors off the theater version, and he yeah. still came at it with a punk rock attitude of, like, what new can we do? What, what's the new thing that we can do to blow the doors off this? He Like, yes. he really, it, it feels that way versus the Man Who Knew Too Much remake feels like the safe blockbuster version yes. like your spielberg yes. who can't he can't miss you know what i mean but like yes. he's, he's definitely not there's no piss in his vinegar anymore like there's really yes. nothing out there to prove in it and george miller still feels like he was he was showing up to be like nope women can lead this thing like fuck you we can do that and yeah. i'll just trick you into it uh we can make a an entire movie a chasing fuck you i can do it like there's just so much fuck you in that that i yeah, yeah. i really yeah. i really admire that even though it's a big budget movie, there's just so much fuck you in it. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And he's apparently 100%. doubling down on it with the Furiosa prequel yes. that he's filming now. So. Well, he we, he has to. I mean, it, well, firstly, he's a very smart guy. He's a very talented guy, but surely he understood and has always understood, um, even with the, you know, I, I defend Beyond Thunderdome, but I, I hear out there in the streets that other people don't think it's as good as I think it is. But, um... But, you know, he's always known that the only only true engine behind Mad Max has been um, bold uh, choices yeah. and huge, um, you know, innovation in, but not innovation, not just technical innovation, but like innovation in the, the narrative itself. Yes, yeah, like yeah, yeah. What he can get away with. And that's what sells that franchise. And that's what makes it, I think, I mean, for my money... Uh, I love all four movies, and uh, for my money, I think that it's the most consistently amazing franchise uh, there is. I mean, maybe uh, Jackie Chan's Police Story, but even the last three films of Jackie Chan's Police Story suck. So, <laughs> they're kind. Did of you fun. just say that a Jackie Chan movie sucks? Oh no! Oh, there's a couple of shitty Jackie Chan. Oh, uh, the American. When he gets... All the American ones are terrible. So. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't even, those aren't even really Jackie Chan. He's just like yeah. getting a paycheck. But I think, <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, he, he, he definitely, he didn't weather the, the 2000s all that great. He definitely tried to be serious. You know, the, when his Hong Kong movies, police story got very serious and somber. It's just not as fun for me uh, to see Jackie Chan be serious. Yeah, and also, yeah. you know, he, he he really leaned into kind of more of the gunplay stuff uh, as he got older and didn't want to get his ass kicked anymore. Right. Which, you know, understandable. He leaned more into like being a guy with a gun. And I, I, I maintain that one of the least interesting things in action cinema is Jackie Chan with a gun. You know, who need who the fuck yeah. needs that? Like that's not fun. It's like giving uh, a gun to Darth Vader. It's like why? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. so lame. It's so lame. And in general it's very rare for me to get enthusiasm out of a action scene with a gun. I, some people can pull it off, but for the most part it's like it's like magic. Like you you bang bang bang, that you either hit them or you don't. You know, it's not the same as <laughs> yeah. as a a well choreographed action sequence to me. Um but yeah no yeah i can i definitely there's like a functional level to a bullet in in a storytelling environment right where you are kind of magic magicking yeah. a character in or out of existence yes um, I, yeah i can definitely see I, the most interesting gunplay things i can think of are usually where it's trying to get the gun out of play like that's yeah. that's <laughs> all, all, almost always more interesting somebody deassembling a gun or something yes. like that 
Yeah, that's agreed. that's one of the things I would say is, in my opinion, slightly better in the remake is the scene where they're going down the stairs mm. and they're just trying to slightly, very quietly get out of the uh, the uh, the embassy. Yeah, that one. But they're trying to just get the gun away from the kid. Yep. That one scene, I was like, that's slightly better in my opinion than the original where they're on the rooftop. In my opinion, that's the so, one thing I'm, I really liked better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's unpack that, shall we, Jesse? <laughs> so okay. <laughs> Jesse, so, you're not allowed to have opinions around Josh. What the fuck well, are you talking fuck. about? <laughs> fuck this, uh, I'm leaving. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just want to make sure that I, I that we all are on the same page. We understand what we're all saying. You're saying to me that it's more interesting to watch Jimmy Stewart push a milky toast villain down some marble staircase than it is to watch Edna Best, sharpshooter, shoot the villain off the roof without hitting her own child in the head and, and resolve the plot point that way, that a, a, a guy who falls down some steps, that, that you felt that was, a, that was a more interesting choice. I felt there was a little bit more tension in my, because right. it, it feel, it, I don't. No, no, no. I'm, 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 I have, I'd the, have to watch them side by side, but I just felt like if, if you don't actually see her fire the gun, you hear the gunshot and you see the smoking barrel of the gun afterwards. Mm. That's so, so that's, I, what, that's what you need. You need, I just, I needed that one shot. This is the thing. <laughs> what, right. what does that refer to as the coolest shot effect? Yeah. I did just, it felt like there was a missing puzzle piece. Intimacy. I, I, I think, you know, I mean, I very often, um, because, because when I'm engaging with narrative, right, I'm always, I'm, I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to find things that are interesting and, and exciting to me. And uh, the idea of Edna Best in the first film is so much more interesting to me uh, than the idea of, of the way they were, even though I actually quite like Doris Day and, um, and, and Stewart, James Stewart, kind of working together you know with the times when they work together together as a married couple is mm. pretty interesting i think and it is more successful it's certainly emotionally but um i just think the idea of edna best the mom who like is a sharpshooter and has it's so cheesy it's so schlocky it's so pulpy and it's so awesome and like and also <laughs> it's it's really built up in a really cool way like in the very beginning she loses the skeet match because her child is a precocious and poorly like <laughs> like a poorly trained child. So her child fucks up her her skeet match and then at the end this kind of like vague swarthy e- e- European guy tells her like I live for the day when we can shoot again, right? <laughs> and he ends and then she shoots him. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and I I just I maybe I've been working in comic books too long and I just find that kind of uh, schlock uh, so enjoyable but um and also an art unto itself but i just find it just a little bit more fun it's just more fun than than james stewart pushing a guy down some stairs to me what what was he a doctor of oh my god do you remember that scene when he's like <laughs> this is the hemorrhoids i solved and this is the pancreas i took out of somebody else and this is the two babies i delivered you're like hold on bro right doctor <laughs> is a general term i think <laughs> Yeah, it's it, to me. It is. It's the same shorthand for, that we have now in action movies, which is um, 
any kind of like specialist military background. It's like, oh, ex- <laughs> explain away his ability to fight people and use guns with specialist military yes. background. He is ex special forces. <laughs> exactly. Of what? Uh, yeah. Ex special forces. Oh, okay. What, what do they teach yeah. them? Doesn't matter. He'll be able to do the things he needs to do in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a fucking Steven Seagal movie. It's like he's good at everything because he has to be for the movie. Yeah, so yes. Dr. Benjamin McKenna is a doctor, so we don't doubt that he's a smart guy. That's, I think, kind <laughs> yeah. of the reason. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still furious that she gives up her career in the second film to be a doctor. Where are they from? Indiana or Kansas or something? Aren't they like some? They kind said of... Indiana, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Furious. <laughs> Furious. Isn't it interesting? You got a movie that's, what is it? I don't know, 22 years. My math is bad. 22 years later. Yeah. And and we've disempowered the female character. Like That's fascinating to me. Yeah, but I mean, that was like your, your post, get, getting into the 50s. That's your kind of um, yeah. put the woman in the home, do the Mad Men thing. Is it is it possible that was a mandate by Paramount? I don't know. Could be. Because I mean, Hitchcock tended to have stronger women in his. He films. really did, yeah. In general, this is a kind of an outlier. If you think about don't, it, don't don't you find it crazy that Hitchcock let? I mean, let, but I mean, I think I don't know, but this possibly was also a mandate. But just letting Doris Day belt out K. Sarah Sarah <laughs> for twenty minutes or whatever right. it is. The, like I maybe that was the uh, the attack on the studio. It's like, well, if you're gonna take away her power, I'm gonna make you listen to this fucking screeching <laughs> harpy for 20 minutes. Well, I wouldn't call her a harpy. Uh, okay, maybe not a harpy, but it's just, but she's she's not a singer. She's not a singer. Yeah, I I just love the meaning behind the song. Like to pick that's a song that specifically is about, eh, fuck it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> fuck it. Oh, whatever. We're at the end of the movie. It's fine. It's like, all right, if this is the, your mandate, I'm going to stuff this little concert sequence in, and she's going to sing, well, fuck it, the song. <laughs> oh, my God. Again, we have to hear it twice. Oh, yeah. it's such an innocuous song. Oh, we Jesus. have to hear it whistled. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so bad. I mean, that's that's the thing. That's the thing. The second movie, this is it in a nutshell. The second movie <laughs> replaces Peter Laurie picking off cops from his bullet-riddled perch. He's a Batman villain. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, precisely. With Doris Day singing K-Sara-Sara. And, you know, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. (laughs) That's my problem right there. Yep. Even the audience when they're when she's singing it is just kind of like, yeah. (laughs) They're they're all like, yeah, this is awful. They're not hype. Yeah, they yeah. are. Actually, I thought that was genius. This is where I really, you know, we get the same kind of stuff from James Whale uh, as a director. This is where um, Hitchcock is fucking genius. Like, you know, he he also thinks this is stupid. And you know it because if you really watch the movie, you can see that the movie thinks it's stupid. Yeah, like, yeah. Everybody in the audience, there's so many people in that audience who are like, "Ugh, this is not very good." <laughs> like you could see it on their face, and that's I think the genius. And it's the same way with, um, you know, uh, James Whale. I'm getting that name. He's Bride of Frankenstein and all that stuff, right? James Whale. That's yes. Mm-hmm. Make sure I get that right. Okay. Well, you can get you can see that in a James Whale film. Like if something is really kind of uh, uh, silly or you know. Um, y- there's just something it's hard to explain but somehow you can see the director 
chuckling to himself behind the behind it. You know what I mean? Like somehow he's he's built his own cynicism into the event mm-hmm. without corrupting um, the mainstream ability of that event. And I, I just think that's such a, an ephemeral art to be able to do that. It, it's Sorry. it's difficult to sort of antagonize your audience while also entertaining them. It's it's yeah. a very fine line to walk. And, and Hitchcock did it all the time, all the time. Yeah, and then, uh, you look at uh, the uh, the films of Sam Raimi. He would do that every now and again as yeah. well. Like Sam Raimi went basically to the school of Hitchcock. You know, it, it's it, yeah, you know, no, it's so true, and it, it pops up even in in his assistant directing for the Coen Brothers when he would cut yes, those yes. visual montages for them. Uh, the, that's straight up Hitchcock. That was just him going, oh, I'm just going to pull a Hitchcock for you guys real quick. Let me let me come yeah. back with this montage. Just visually. Yeah. He's yeah. so good at it, too. He's so good at it. Anyways, I think we've come to the come to the uh, the end here. I think we can all agree. These are both good movies. Yeah. It's just the original has more of an ambition to it. The remake I'm, is obviously, it, it like it's been said in here, it, it is a contractual obligation. It was a piece of material that Hitchcock wanted to revisit. Mm. So he had the opportunity and so he took it. So I, and I'm, ex- I'm excited that we all kind of, I, I, I thought maybe at least one of us would defend um, because generally speaking, I believe this is not the general consensus that I, I think that the Jimmy Stewart film is generally more well loved. Yeah. And um, that, that's kind of the reason I enjoyed a little, a little bit more. It's just, it's just so much more on a technical level feels a little bit stronger in my opinion. Sure. And I think tonally too. I mean, I think there is really something to be said for the way Stewart and Day uh, feel about missing their child yeah, and how yeah. palpable you, you sense that. And, and you don't get that from the first film. It's just not, doesn't have nearly as much mischievous joy as the first film does. I have a feeling that's what's going to happen with the remake of the Thirty Nine Steps that's coming up. Oh my god! You know god. that's happening. Who's, no, who's doing that? Uh, it's supposed to be Benedict Cumberbatch. It's supposed to be for Netflix. I hope he brings his fuck cloth with him. Remember his fuck cloth from the cowboy movie Power of the Dog? I never that, saw Power of the Dog. Oh, he fucks his washcloth. It's hot. Oh, for. Jesus Why are we so obsessed with male masturbation in movies right now? <laughs> this is like the hot <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> Jesus I mean, Christ. maybe it's overdue. Ty- maybe it's time. No, Tynus, is, Tynus and I threw around the idea of having the character in our movie jerk off in the work bathroom just to, like, show him to be an evil guy. And it was like, it was just weird that it keeps coming up. And but why is it evil? I know. He's yeah, like, yeah, exactly. He's like, well, you know, grab your phone. You know, if you've got five, <laughs> 10 minutes, grab your phone, go to the bathroom, relax. Is this where you wanted to end the podcast, Jesse? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't need to know about this. Stop. All right. Rewinding Jesus. from fuck cloth. Um. <laughs> but yeah, there's a remake of, uh, it's for Netflix. Don't worry. It'll be canceled after two seasons. Um, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, a TV show. Uh, it's a limited steps? series. I think. Yeah. It's just limited series. I think it's probably, it's probably like, uh, what is it? Queen's Gambit. It's like, yeah, like, eight like, episodes, eight, like six it's... episodes or eight episodes or whatever. Yeah. Cool. Who who knows? We'll see. I don't know. I I actually argue Thirty Nine Steps is a little bit better than the original Man Who Knew Too Much because it feels like a slight improvement of the material. Also, that's the first film that created the concept of the MacGuffin. Mm. The idea of that apparently that is as far as I remember that is the first film that invented the MacGuffin. I thought it was Maltese Falcon. Yeah, yeah. When was Maltese Falcon? When did that come out? 
Was that after? Like, 39 steps was, was 35. Oh, let's see. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, 31. Yeah, you're right. Fuck, I take it back. I take it back. But he, yeah. but he 19, used 1931. it. He used it. And that's, yes. he may have popularized it too from that. Because I'm, I'm trying to think of who, what people may ha- have seen more often mm-hmm. you know, of the two. Like Maltese Falcon, I'm, I, I've seen it because my dad really liked it. But that's the only reason I would have otherwise seen it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think Maltese Falcon is an amazing movie. Um, it's a huge, very, very, very high on my list. But here, look, we can just go by logs on Letterboxd, right? Sixty-three thousand people have logged the thirty-nine steps, and this is a soft science. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's uh, like Rotten Tomatoes. Yes, we totally agree. Yes, that is <laughs> Avatar is absolutely a great movie according to Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and 112,000 people have logged Maltese Falcon. Okay. So, well. you know, at least at least to this one film lover's site, it's almost twice the amount of people. Yeah, so what's that. the bias there because it is an app for film people? Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's it's, it's interesting. I mean, it may be uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, I actually, I think a Maltese Falcon is a better film. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I should rewatch 39 Steps, though. It's been a very long time. When I get through the Coens, I may go back to Hitchcock. Nice. <laughs> You're working your way through their filmography? Slowly. Nice. Yeah, la- Later Killers just happened to line up within there, too, which was perfect. Perfect, yeah. Uh, my director of the year, the, whose filmography I'm going through here and there, is Abel Ferrara. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm doing this year. If I had time to sit down and watch an entire director's filmography, I would, but unfortunately I'm extraordinarily busy these days. It sucks. I will not get through all the Ferrara films, uh, especially because I'm also re-watching as I go. Yeah. So. Um, it's just something, you know, every year I'll just, I'll just get through however many as I can. And I try to do them, do one director in order and you know, whatever. If I get 10 movies watched, that's 10 movies. If I get five movies watched, that's five. So I don't take it too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I did that. I did that with Carpenter at one point. That was fun. That was interesting. It's, it's unfortunate that around the nineties, it's just like a series of tragedies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's the thing. It's really, I mean, it, it's interesting to watch an artist go through their, their phases and grow and also sort of sometimes, you know, hit on hard times or whatever creatively. And yeah, I, I would, it's an interesting exercise. I would love to watch a movie about a director getting his punk rock back by a director yes. getting his punk rock back. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's what I want. Sounds awesome. Can't mm. wait to see that movie. John Carpenter comes back to do his own biopic. Ah! <laughs> yes. Home run. Are you kidding me? I'd love to see it. <laughs> but mm. you just got to respect Carpenter's uh, desire to do nothing but smoke pot and make electronic music. I, truly, you know, you truly, just, he is yeah. goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. It's like this guy, he owes nobody anything. You know, he, he didn't quite, I think, get, I mean, he's obviously quite beloved, but I don't think he quite got the love he deserved when he was actually making the work. Mm. So, you know, uh, he's like, fuck everybody. You know, I'm well off. Uh, I got nothing else to do with my life. I've, I've, I've given as much to the culture as a man can give. Yeah. Like, I love it. 
I think we said before that Carpenter's films are infinitely remakeable. Yeah. Because they're they're so simple. Yeah, but nobody will ever do them as well as he did them. I mean, I yeah. I mean, Big Trouble Little China is on the chopping block right Fuck. now with Dwayne Johnson, and we're just kind of like, no, don't do it. It's gonna don't. suck. Don't no. The, the only one of his I'd really love to see is a remake or a pseudo sequel to They Live. That's the only one where I'm like that. I could see being. You done could do now. a TV show. You could do like a like a big cool high prestige. Oh TV yeah, show universe like a, like an Apple TV. You, yeah. you know, bring in like Jane, uh, Dane Judy Dench, and I'm just stuck. <laughs> I'm stuck on her at the moment. I just keep pitching her for every project I think of. Be amazing, amazing. <laughs> God. Her, is she? But is she one of the aliens, or is she one of the people who finds the sunglasses? Oh, good question. Oh, making okay, <laughs> reimagining uh, like early masculine films with old women in the leads. Yeah, sounds like a really yes. fun time to me. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I agree 100. That was my my big in for the new Terminator. Was like okay, but we're gonna we're gonna watch you know uh, um, Linda um, Linda, Linda Hamilton. Hamilton go fucking ham. Uh, in her old age, in the like lead action role, so I- I'm here for it. I am too. Agreed. I mean, I didn't see that, but uh, well, I, it, I, it I, ends I, in a wet brown fart because that's the only way you can end those movies now. But yeah, at least the lead up is awesome. I love yeah. the idea of it. That's very much like that's very me with these big budget films too. Like something like that will happen where I am excited for the very same reason you just mentioned. Like, yeah, I do want to see Linda Hamilton fucking out there kicking ass. You know, um, but then I really actually never go see the movie. I just don't. I'm not so enthusiastic that I can actually be motivated to watch, sit down and watch it. I think but, it's on HBO Max now if you want to watch it. You'd be as well because for however long HBO yeah, Max continues to exist. <laughs> continues to exist. I, dude, I, I am punching myself in the nuts for putting all that time into Raised by Wolves. I'm never going to know how it ends now. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Oh I, man! I tell you that what I might get off my ass to watch is if they made Linda Hamilton the Terminator. If the next Terminator right. came back and she was, you know, and Linda Hamilton got to play the Terminator for, you know, for some forced narrative reason, that would be amazing. I would I, totally I buy would, into that. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And then like Schwarzenegger's just like a, a detached head that can get yeah. voiced over <laughs> and carried around. <laughs> Amazing! I okay, love so, it. So we're basically doing God of Maybe War, have but like it's like spider legs, like yeah, an arrow, like yeah, electronic he's... spider legs that walk it around like a robotic. He, he's the droid comedic side character. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. He's a he's a mini General Grievous. There you go. Oh, perfect. Oh, it's exactly what I should be. <laughs> All right, I'm trying to end. I'm trying to end a podcast. Yes, I'm sorry. Guys. I will be good. <laughs> Damn it! We're almost two hours in. I'll be good. Okay, so. All right. Uh, so original, very good. It's it just definitely is the most ambitious between the two. The remake. It's a little is, lopsided. It's a little. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely lopsided. Too, yeah. She's lumpy. Yeah, she's yeah, lumpy. But, yeah. Oh yeah, I forgot about your amazing analysis. Okay, keep. <laughs> Keep but going. the remake, the remake is a technical, technically superior film, even if mm. it's got some problems, especially the weird disempowerment of women within the movie. It's yeah, just, yeah, probably a mandate from Paramount because it was the 1950s and Paramount was all about that. If you're so. gonna throw an old timey spy party, though, I'd throw this movie on in the background. The, the remake, I'd put it on in the background. Yeah. It's it's beautiful to look at, and yeah. and, I, and and you know it it had the same charm of the first one uh, in this regard. The the sort of like low um, 
the low scale of it. It's such a high stakes thing, a political assassination <laughs> of a of a world leader. But it, you know, but it's all it's so like feet on the ground. Yeah. Just a handful of people involved. I think you get a little bit more of that sense in the first one. I mean, I cannot overemphasize how cool Peter Laurie's little cabal of political, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're they're You're sitting so back behind weird. the scenes, smoking and listening yeah. for the gunshot. <laughs> oh my god, that that control room, that scene, it sort of reminded me of like Obama and everybody waiting to <laughs> watch, watching the assassination of Osama bin Laden. You know the con- famous control right, room photograph, right. but it's Peter Laurie smoking cigarettes, listening to the radio. <laughs> With his political cabal around him, it's, uh, I love how like low scale it all is, even though it's these high stakes. So, yeah. Continue, mm. Jesse. Sorry. Okay. Jesse. <laughs> no, I, I I agree it, because they don't really give a damn about the political implications of what's happening. They just they want to just interrupt the assassination so they can find their kid. They don't. They could give a shit less about the politics. Mm. Yeah, and I I actually they're quite divorced like that. from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Usually in films like that today, it's like, oh, we need to, you know, save the nation. It's like these people don't care. Mm. Like they're not yeah. interested. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And that that you feel that in both films. You might even feel that element a little bit stronger in the second film. Mm-hmm. This like like fuck your politics. I'm looking for my child. Mom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what parents would naturally do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like I like that. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful conceit. Uh, and, and the fact that Hitchcock was the, you know, was the first to bring it to film. I, I know that I think it came out of um, like some pulp stories from the 20s and 30s. But these parents looking for their child caught up in this political whirlwind of, of events that are essentially happening on the global stage, even mm. though the films are quite <laughs> the films are quite low key. Mm. Um uh, I, I mean, but it's genius. I mean, that's what we mean when we say that first film sort yeah. of changed film history. Yeah. The first one's kind of a Pink Panther movie, and then the second one's kind of an Argo. Like, they're they're really... <laughs> yes! <What? laughs> that yes! One of them's trying to be funny about it, and the other one's trying to take it seriously. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So if you don't like one, you would just watch the other, and you can probably get enjoyment there. So yeah. there's a little something for everybody. It's a self-litmus test, yeah. The, the, whichever yes. one you prefer, you'll learn about yourself. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it should be stated change. that, and it should yeah. be stated that. I mean, I guess we already did state this, but you know, we all three prefer the first. But I think the general consensus is that people prefer the second film. So mm. take that mm. as it may, well, I, listener. I'm happy that this episode can stand as like a three person defense for the first one of like. I am too. For these reasons, you should at least revisit it, even if you're going to stick yes. with the remake as your favorite. Just to mm-hmm. watch Peter Laurie just own every scene that he's in, personally, I think it's, it's mm-hmm. worth it. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right. So now that we've come to the end, I'm going to announce our next episode. We're watching My Bloody Valentine. Nice. We're going to go back to horror. So Hope has to be on that one because she's the horror horror. So. <laughs> I've never seen the remake. I know it came out around the time a 3D was big, so I'm expecting some really bad CGI 3D. I'm expecting that. Nice, nice. Yeah. I quite like the, re- the original. You know, I like the original, but I, I've i never seen the remake. I saw the trailers, and I was like, I just don't care. <laughs> the, the, it's going to be a fun one because I'm very nostalgic for that like early aughts, uh, new metal wave <laughs> of horror. Oh, um, God. There's there's some cool stuff in that remake. For for the 3D aspects being as um, sparse and ugly as they are, there's some, there's some cool shit in the remake. 
I kind of I have over the years uh, bad CGI from that era has really grown on me over the years, and I really start <laughs> to feel fondly for it. So when I see it, I kind of get pretty excited. About it's it. it's the intro sequences that really get me. The like <laughs> super close ups of like disgusting things on a table, and you know like really ugly edit wipes, and and then it's all set yes. to like you know payable on death or something. That's the shit I miss in horror movies. Yeah. It reminds me of that remake of House of Wax. So yes. I'm just like, oh god. Oh my god, that is a prime example of. That. I would, yeah. I would dick ride that movie to my death. I love that <laughs> remake. I love every aspect of that remake. Oh god, oh. including the casting, Fry. including the casting. Paris Hilton deserves to be there. Oh, just so <laughs> she can it. die and I can watch her die on screen. Oh, thank god. Oh man. Yeah. My bloody Valentine next time. Nice. Exciting. Yes. Yes. We're getting close to the end of the season, so I'm trying to keep it as varied as possible. Nice. How many of these do you guys do in a season? Uh, We ten? had, like, I think we did 10 the first season. The sec- and the second season, we dropped it down, I think, to, I think we're about, what are we doing? One, two, Eight. Yeah, 10 this season. Yeah. yeah. Eight to 10 normally. Nice. Yeah, about nice. 10 this season. Yeah, because yeah, it's 20 had- movies. It's like, that's a lot of. Uh, yeah, I know. That's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And also, we do, that's why we do them bi-weekly. It's like, you know, just for time and such. So, Because uh, this coming week, I'm working on a TV show in D.C., and my call time tomorrow is 3.30 in the fucking morning! Buddy, you need to get to bed. Get your... Uh... Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the week afterwards, I'm going up to New York to possibly work on the Fallout TV show for Amazon. So, nice. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, they've turned Staten Island into a nuclear-irradiated wasteland. So Cool. It wasn't before? I know that's what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, you just you just beat me to it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> everyone was yeah. thinking it. I, I I didn't invent anything. <laughs> that's that's the next big trend in television, and Amazon is getting on board with it. Video game adaptations. They have three in uh, development right now. They have Fallout. They have God of War, and they have The Last of Us, which, according to the dailies, are saying is the next Walking Dead. So well, that's not saying much. Well, the first episode of Walking Dead is a, is one of the best horror zombie movies of all time, and the rest of the series you can kind of just take it or leave it. <laughs> can I just can I just say that's an absurd thing to say? Listen, Frank uh, Darabont did a lot of good shit with that first season. That first episode is really fucking good. Okay, <laughs> I I, uh, I I I I finished that first season and never went back. Um, the I, you, you got, made the you, right decision. You got, you got the whole thing. The, Literally, that, you that, got that, exactly you stop what there. The Walking Dead you is. Stop there. Yes. But I mean, I didn't go back because I, I, I found the first season so bad. I couldn't stand it. Like, it was driving me crazy. And the only wow. reason I finished it was because... Um, was Short because season? That was a, there was just less options back then on TV for corn cutters. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, there was. just watched whatever you get your hands on. Mm, true. And now there's just so much on the market that everyone's getting gobbled up and... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. By HBO Max. No, oh, Jesus Christ. That is so sad. That the I, I'm I feel so bad for everybody at HBO Max that just lost their jobs because they got bought out by Discovery. Just the fucking bloodbath that's happening over there right now. Sharks in the water. God, it's awful. Anyways, let's go ahead and end <laughs> this, guys. All right. So Josh, where can people find you online? And what are you currently working on? Uh I am I have a new series will be announced in November. I can't bring it up yet. A new comic book miniseries. My novel, it's really a novella, 
because uh, it's only 100 pages, which means you could read it really quickly, is called Brood X, and that can be purchased anywhere you purchase pulp books, pulp trashy books. Um, <laughs> it's uh, It combines my love of Agatha Christie, mysteries, slashers, and construction sites and bugs. Uh, and let's see, I don't think there's anything else I can talk about right now that hasn't been announced yet but i am mostly spend my time on twitter which is a mistake <laughs> and one day i will stop doing that but if you want to come find me you can find me there and i'm also in letterboxd under joshua dysart d-y-s-a-r-t and that's who i am and where i am nice why i am <laughs> and Seth, what about you? You can check me out online at Seth X Decker on Twitter as well, which I'm also on too much. I'm also on TikTok causing trouble and uh, Instagram finally taking my photography more seriously. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I'm I'm tweeting that hot take from from Dysart. John Krasinski's a cop. That's where I'd like to uh, <laughs> end, end this episode for me. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't there a movie where he did play a cop well also Th- he was 13 in that, hours yeah that, yeah i was yeah literally thinking yeah, hours so, so d- d- team america police yeah same yeah thing. team america police <laughs> yeah yeah. there's a reason he's not coming back as mr fantastic right <laughs> yeah i think that's probably a good decision he's expensive and he's old that's why yes <laughs> god Anyways, uh, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Hardcore B Shot. Also, you can find uh, our other shows, To Whatever's Way Up and Film Rescue Show, where our most recent episode just dropped. We did The Dark Knight Rises. You're off the hook, Josh. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, we did it. We did it. It is like the la- the only film that I would feel comfortable just talking huge amounts of shit about. We asked you. You said no. <laughs> I don't like to talk shit about movies. <laughs> you just said you did Oh, in person. Yeah. This sounds like yeah. an invitation for you and me to talk about it when I come see you. There yeah. is a, there is a movie we did want to suggest as like you wouldn't have to be too mean. We'll discuss that off air. Oh, okay, we'll, okay, okay. We'll we'll discuss it in a second. But yeah. Yeah, we did Dark Knight Rises. You don't have to do it. We we promise. It was a good episode though. It was a good episode. We had Russ Burling game on that one. Yeah. And uh, well, I mean, do you uh I mean, obviously nobody wants to hear this, but uh I mean, how do you guys did where did you land on it? Does anyone did anyone defend it? I want to hear a defense of that. Nope. 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 (laughs) We basically just said it's not a Batman movie. It's a war movie. Batman is in it for about 20 minutes. There isn't, uh, there's very, very few, and I would say virtually no movies where like someone's opinion of that movie would change my opinion of that person, you know, because uh, it's all so subjective and and human beings should be looked at in a, a higher light. But uh, but that movie, if somebody mm-hmm. really capes for that movie, that's probably a terrible person. <laughs> They're probably horrible people. I, I came to defense of sequences within it and choices within it. Uh, well, sure, that's that's yeah, yeah. Like like I love that the open. Never, well, never mind. We're closing the show. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk about that off air. <laughs> we, we can't keep going. Okay. All right. As we close out, thank you, Josh. I know you were. Uh, weren't sure if you'd be able to make it for this one, but thank you for taking the time out of your day for this. I always have fun doing it. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry that I'm scared of people. Scared of people. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And uh, thank you, Seth. I know you're you're in uh, 
Where, where are you, West Virginia right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, the the response was uh, my brother's heart attack was from oh, no. Daredevil and the 18 episodes being announced. That was that was his word. He wanted me to, so to relay that. So. <laughs> 18 episodes i barely made through 13 not again man he was like seth that's half a year of television i can't do it i can't do it uh and with that good night good night Yeah. Now, I would argue uh, Raimi sometimes steps a little bit over the... I mean, I love Raimi, so, you know, this is not how I feel. But, like, he, he didn't quite have it down as well as Hitchcock because mm. Raimi has has accidentally antagonized his audience yeah. when he meant to <laughs> yeah. secretly, you know, like, uh, you know, people don't love... Uh, the dark transformation in Spider-Man 3, even though it's actually fucking hilarious and pretty kind of interesting and fun. And people don't love Drag Me to Hell, even though I think Drag Me to Hell is a massive joke and a massive fuck you to the audience. Drag Me to so. Hell is is one of my favorite <laughs> horror comedies to show people that just the clip with the goat, just to be like, this is how you know yes. you're not supposed to take this seriously. Yes. This, is the, <laughs> this is the point where you should know. Yes. Well, I mean, the third time that he uh, puts something in that actress's mouth, yeah. whether it's slime or bugs or somebody's hand. Or an by eyeball. The, by the, yeah, by the time the third or fourth time he's shoving something in her mouth, they're like, okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> this, this is a choice. And I mean, uh, he, he loves to screw with his audience yeah. and just makes them kind of gag or retch or something like that. And Hitchcock did the same thing. I mean, even recently with uh, the most recent Doctor Strange, which you didn't see, I'm fairly certain. There's a the best sequence of that film will always be the death of the Illuminati, which is the funniest thing I think I've seen all goddamn year. <laughs> just just fucking kills like seven main characters in the span of two minutes, and it's the nice. funniest thing in, ever. In the like, most the creative is... ways that you could kill people. <laughs> yeah, the whole audience awesome. is like, "What the fuck did that just happen?" No, <laughs> is that a good movie? I keep hearing mixed things. It, about it's a it. movie with great uh, sequences. Yeah, yeah, rock on. Same. You know, seeing John Krasinski as Mr. Fantastic get turned into spaghetti was pretty funny. Yeah. That's kind of cool. He's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> Reed Richards is a cop. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, quote that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant the actor. John. Oh, you, John Krasinski's a cop. Oh. Yeah. Hotter take. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's got moments, but it, I wouldn't say it's a great movie. Because we had two multiverse movies come out this year. One is significantly better than the other. Let's just put it that Only way. Only one of them had somebody getting beaten to death with dildos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's been a thing this year. We've had movies and TV shows where people get beat up or hit, killed with dildos. Did you see my tweet about that? I used the the um, oh uh, Phineas and Ferb meme that was like, yeah. I, I have 10 <laughs> cents. It's just really odd that it happened twice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! How, how, do we, I, how do we wrap this back around to I'm, the man who knew too much? Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of myself because uh, usually if you guys start talking about any pop culture reference between, you know, this in this century, I'm lost. But uh, I actually saw both dildo 
SmackDown scenes yes. that I believe you're referring to, both in The Boys and in yes. Everywhere, yes. Everything, All the Time, All at Once to the thing that is always going on. And well, you're you're also up to date on The Boys, I'm guessing, right? Uh, I have not seen the last episode. Really? Uh, it's okay. It's, it's good. It's fine. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I... I, I there was... Um, there's been two or three episodes this last season that I thought were fantastic, like loved. Yeah. Uh, and but as it's kind of winding down, I, I've I've lost interest. But I'll get to it. I'll the get to the it. last episode is not going to be well remembered because it's just setting the stage for the the next, the season. next season. And and I, and it's not apparent if that's going to be the last season or not because they're kind of running out of material unless they're going to invent new stuff. So. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the the show is definitely better than the comics. I'll say that right now. I think every no I think every time it gets Venice. reiterated, yeah. it's going to be better. Honestly, I I think it's one of those mm. things that benefits from having the old shit examined in it and the new shit examined next to it. Because like seeing this Bush era shit right next to all this Trump stuff in the boys, mm-hmm. it's so much fun to me. Who's who's lived through both of them to be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I guess I guess it does just kind of wrap all the way back around again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, no shit. Uh, yeah, excellent. Mm-hmm. No uh, shit. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't blame you personally. Um I but yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I think, you know, one thing that Garth did, um and others had done it too, but it's so important and we have to keep it alive as long as we're in this uh you know, uh Uber culture superhero phase um that society is going through is that don't trust power don't trust power right don't trust superpower don't trust any power stop trusting power and um the boys is the only only vehicle right now only delivery device for that in the superhero genre yeah uh you know Mm -hmm. um post watchmen or something so i think it's incredibly important and i agree with you every every permutation of it um, and we'll probably see it emerge every time we have uh, a flirtation with fascism in this country. We'll probably see a new iteration of the boys emerge. So flirtation with fascism, yeah, dude. We're, we're like in bed with Yeah, it, I was going to say, we've oh. rededicated our vowels on a second honeymoon, baby. <laughs> like, like, dude. <laughs> I will say, I'll give away this one thing in the final episode. There's a sequence where a guy throws something at Homelander and calls him a fascist. Homelander just bolts him in the eyes with his, with his laser vision and blows his head up and he gets applauded for it. That's America in a nutshell right now. Yeah, agreed. I think they yeah. did an excellent job of uh I often very very often find the folding in of a sort of a trumpist language or trumpist value system or trumpist zeitgeist into art very unsuccessful. Mm. Like I thought one of the things about Red Rocket that I found pretty false and glaringly um that I just didn't buy was like all, all the sort of them watching like the Trump debates and stuff on TV and everything. It doesn't help that 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 movie takes place literally where I grew up, mm. and so I I can really see the 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 sort of fallacies and theatricalities of of the region that that he's trying to embrace. But I think the boys have done an excellent job um, of of folding this kind of Trumpist language into their show because well, because they dressed it up behind butcher like I, 
Carl yeah. Urban and what he oh, did yeah. for how that show is thought of. Like he's the reason that, that we're now three seasons in, and there are fans just now figuring out that Homelander's the bad guy. Like that—that's insane to me. <laughs> but it's—it's it's, you couldn't fucking tell. He looks like fucking Judge Dredd with his his shoulder. Uh, what are they called? His uh, pauldrons, right? And his, yes, his fucking flag for a cape. Like you can't tell. Lots of people yeah. don't know that Judge Dredd is also a villain, though. That's like, <laughs> yeah, like, you guys couldn't tell. I'm sorry, Judge Jesus. Dredd is a cop. Um, that's as far as I had to read into it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. He's a cop with a license to kill you if you slightly irritate him. So he's a cop. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he will put you in an ice cube for eating sugar. All right. Right. He's a fascist. <laughs> God, I remember, I remember that issue. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, was there one episode issue where he got gave a guy like 127 years in an isolation cube because he got like 50 parking tickets back to back? It's like you may as well just shoot the guy right now because he's not going to outlive that. Yeah, it's like the drain yeah. on the system for all that. It's like, yeah, I can't, I can't shoot you. This is not an executable offense. So they just throw him in a cube and leave him forever. <laughs> I mean, the, it is interesting. Dread really is. Uh, the, it is the boys for that for the Thatcher era. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. the English Thatcher ism. Um, yeah. Dread 3D was 10 years too early. If it came out now, it would be much more successful and much better received. Mm. Yeah. Anyways, we're way off topic. I'll put this at the back end of the episode. <laughs> my fault. My fault. The comic, no, it's okay. The, we were thanks just, for sticking around for the comic book uh, review section. 